Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast, the podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. And we are your hosts, James Lee and Gabby Corbett. So our guest today is the Reverend Nicole Caldwell-Gross, who is a woman on fire for Christ. And this flame lit her path to Mount Holyoke College, where she received a Bachelor of Arts in Politics, and Princeton Theological Seminary, where she received her Master's of Divinity and was awarded the George L. Rentschler Prize in Speech Communication. She has held diverse ministry roles as an associate pastor, a nonprofit executive director, and denominational leader. She is currently the first woman and person of color to serve as a senior pastor at Noble's First United Methodist Church. While God's call has led her to Dubai, India, South Africa, and Cuba, her most meaningful mission field is in Indiana, where she resides with her partner in marriage and ministry, the Reverend Dr. Javon Caldwell-Gross. They are outnumbered by their three children, Joshua Alexander, Olivia Grace, and Isabella Joy. When Nicole is not preaching or podcasting, she's sipping an extra hot macchiato with a burger on the side. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and kudos to you for reading all of those hyphenated names. God bless you. <laughs> it's always an adventure. It's, it's quite the it's quite the epic bio, Nicole, and um, uh, it's so glad to have you back. <laughs> yeah. It's glad it's it's a joy to talk to you all. I miss New Jersey, and it's good to see your faces. Yeah, I think the last time you were on the podcast was probably five or six years ago, because uh, I know you were pregnant at the time. With oh I believe it was Isabella. Gosh, that, that was the last time that, you were on. Oh my gosh, she's six years old! Wow. So there you go. So it was about <laughs> probably six or more years years ago that you were on the podcast. So it's been a while. Yeah. Wow. So um, back then you were serving as the director of mission for GNJ. You went on to serve in other leadership capacities. Um, so just give us a quick update, Nicole. Uh, what yeah. has been going on in your life since uh, the last time you were in New Jersey? Well, first thing, I am not pregnant again. <laughs> we'll never be pregnant again. <laughs> I just want to state that emphatically to anyone that may be listening, especially my husband. Um, but... <laughs> Since then, I, I really think of two words, which is um, holy whirlwind. Some people experience mm. God in this kind of still small voice. I experience mm. God in more of an extreme weather, tornado kind of experience. And the last five years have felt like that. Um, mm. and, and yet in a positive way, just the pace of which God has brought us to new places and new experiences. So since 2018, Javon and I then started serving together at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, um, the largest church in, in our region, one of the largest in our connection. And then a global pandemic hit. Uh, and like all pastors everywhere, we asked what, why, how, what's next, God? Um, and then I think there was a pandemic around racism around what it meant to be a neighbor, what justice looked like. And that propelled my ministry into, um, into ways that I perhaps was not expecting, for particularly serving in a predominantly white congregation in the Midwest. And so from there, leading anti-racism work, civil rights pilgrimage, uh, 
you know, writing, co-writing books on justice uh, with some of my colleagues. It has been busy. It has been blessed. It has been hard, but it has mm. been good. Yeah, I remember when you um, left GNJ and moved to St. Luke's UMC, <laughs> you shared with us that one of your dreams was to be in ministry with your husband, yeah. Javon. Yeah. And St. Luke's was an answer to that prayer. Mm -hmm. um, since then, you've gone on to do uh, speaking engagements together. You came to Ignite one year, yes. uh, our youth conference <laughs> here in New Jersey. And you also wrote a book uh, together recently, uh, the, mm -hmm. uh, the Big Picture, Seeing yeah. God's Dream for Your Life. So what have been some of the joys and also then some of the challenges uh, yeah. being in a ministry partnership with your mm. life partner? It has. I, I actually just had a staff retreat yesterday. And one of the things that we looked at was Luke chapter 5 when Jesus calls Peter or then Simon and by association, his brother and James and John. And we talked about how the real miracle of that text isn't the abundance of fish or even Simon saying, yes, the miracle is partnership. And we looked mm -hmm. at eight different acts of trust, radical acts of trust that are unearned mm -hmm. that the disciples show Jesus and Jesus shows the disciples in turn. And one of those is when they're both start to sink and it says in the text that Simon signals his partners. There's no you know, mm -hmm. verbal communication. It's a signal because they speak their own language because there's such a deep foundation of trust. And I think working with Javon is like being in that boat. We, I think mm -hmm. because we are not only partners in ministry, but partners in marriage, you, you all know this through your own deep and trusted relationships, you develop your own language. And when I feel like my boat is sinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, I just got a call from this person, or I'm working on this sermon and the Lord has stopped speaking. <laughs> like then all of a sudden there's this signal that you can send and your work becomes our work. And that mm. has been incredible. It has restored I, perhaps even my vision of what equity and partnership can look like, mm -hmm. equity and professional partnerships can look like. Um, and also, I think a lot of married couples unofficially work together without credit. And so yeah. it was a blessing to be both credited for the ways that mm. we uh, so into each other's ministry. You ask any married couple, especially I, in my experience, women in ministry who are not ordained, they are still doing the work of ministry alongside their partners, usually yeah. their ordained husbands. And so uh, that, that has been an incredible joy. I think the challenge is learning um, how differently we negotiate space. <laughs> so my kids hmm. and I... Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh my gosh. So our offices were next door to each other. And uh -huh. my husband would, we'd have a meeting, right? And he, he would leave all of his dishes from like eating lunch on my table. And if he were my colleague, he would never do that, right? Because right. who goes into someone <clears throat> else's office and eats and leaves their tuna fish stuff sitting there? <laughs> but he's like, You'd be fired, right? Right. I mean, who does that? And so having to like remind him, this is not our house. <laughs> like, mm. pick up your stuff, dude. I don't do this in your office. And he's like, yeah, that was an adjustment. Or even our, some of our colleagues making sure to still see us as two whole individual people 
right? So I remember one of our, um, the executive pastor at St. Luke's would say, I've got to remember when I tell you something, I still have to communicate to Javon. When I communicate with Javon, I still have to communicate with you. You are two separate people. So helping people to understand that. And even I think us understanding that, I'm sure I left dishes in his office too. Actually, no, I never did that. I did leave shoes though. So it goes both ways. Um, And then I I think the, the other, I think challenge that I would lift up is just the limitations that people project on you on their experiences Mm -hmm. of couples and ministry and having Mm -hmm. to navigate those narratives, which there are some really negative narratives around um, people who are married and partnered in ministry and, you know, trying to say, we're Nicole and Javon, those experiences are real and valid. uh, But we have the opportunity to create a new narrative together. If we're open to that, Mm -hmm. I would say, the really big challenge we had to attend to, and actually the pandemic maybe helped us or forced us to acknowledge this, is to not let our marriage become ministry and to remember Mm. that we were married. At our our, uh, wedding, um, my mentor in ministry said, you are marrying Nicole, not the church, and vice Mm. versa. And we had to covenant to that. And we have not always done that really well. Um, And the pandemic actually forced us to recognize ways that our whole life was centered around ministry. And when we came back from the pandemic, we were like, yeah, we're glad to be back in church. We are never going back to that same pace and not Mm. centering the marriage over the ministry. And so that was both a joy, a challenge, a joy and challenge all at the same yes. time. So what would be some practical advice that you would give to folks who are looking either to move into ministry, you know, as co-pastors with their spouse or those of us who are ordained and have our one plus one, right? We have our little yeah. plus ones one of those. You know, how what are just a couple of bits of advice that you would give to mm-hmm. folks to help maintain those boundaries mm-hmm. and to do something really meaningful and profound and sacred in the work that you do uh, yeah. that preserves yeah. both your ministry and individuals' gifts for ministry, mm-hmm. but also preserves you as individuals and your marriage, your relationships, mm-hmm. your family. Yeah, I I want to start with the the latter part of that where you talked about mm-hmm. uh, couples that may not have both of uh, those leaders ordained, but both are mm-hmm. rightfully you know leading in the church. And I think that, and I've been on both sides of that um, before yeah. I was ordained, and Javon was serving as a lead pastor, and everyone assumed I would lead women's ministry, children's ministry, and all of our <laughs> community outreach work. Right, like right. day right. one. <laughs> So I think that one of the things that helped was when I was asked to do that work at Javon's first appointment, he said, okay, that's something we can talk with her about, but the SPRC will have to meet with her. Not, mm-hmm. I'm not going to set this up. It has to be mm-hmm. an actual titled position, even if it's not a paid position. And yeah. I was, you know, the, um, pastor of community outreach and all of these other things. It didn't fit into a title, but it did help in teaching the congregation that what I come 
to share and bring in leadership should be honored in the same way that we honor any other leader in our congregation. And I think that it's on that other pastor who has that ordained role to help to set those boundaries. I would say the last piece, and I do not do this well. I am still trying to learn how to do this well. I have a colleague, Mindy Moore, uh, who starts each year planning her four weeks of vacation. Not Mm. her sermon series, not uh, what her staff retreat, that's what she plans. And she then books all of the childcare for their date nights for like Mm -hmm. a year (laughs) in advance. And Javon and I talk about this all the time. Like, okay, this year we're going to be like Mindy Moore. (laughs) And we make it about three months, but it's Mm -hmm. never a prioritizing her own rest and time with her relationship communicates the value that that's the most important thing. And I have always wanted and aspired to do that. And so I pass that on to others that might be struggling with that. It amazes me. So then when we sat down to plan ministry, she knew exactly when and when she would not be available um, and claim that time. It's holy time. It matters. And if you don't do that, you cannot do all of the other things in ministry well. Awesome. I know you asked Thank for you. like tidbits. I'm sorry. I just couldn't stop. <laughs> no, this is all good. And I, I, I'm definitely in need. I think we all need to channel our inner Mindy more. So yes. that's a huge takeaway. Oh my gosh. Shout out to like, Mindy. <laughs> what does it look like to plan out your vacation before? I don't know why that's blowing my mind. And yet yes. it is like, yeah. <laughs> I need to do that. We all need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Nicole, now you are serving as the senior pastor for uh, Noblesville First United Methodist Church. And you are the first um, senior pastor of color and the Mm -hmm. first female Mm -hmm. senior pastor. Is that correct? Right. So that's right. That's a lot. A lot of firsts. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And so I guess my question is, what are some of the lessons that you have learned as you're navigating so many firsts in this appointment? Mm -hmm. Uh, what's been your grounding space when things get hard or overwhelming and what's sort of the process? What are some of the things you've learned along the way? I think that, and this is going to sound trite, but even though you might be the first um, to remember that you are not the only and you're not the last. And I think that one of the things that I laid upon my shoulders, especially the first six months. I know I'm preaching to the choir of of two pastors. You feel like you have to fix the church yesterday. (laughs) And then you layer on top of that, the responsibility that you can accept or not accept to represent your entire race and your entire gender while doing that. And I have had really great leaders around me who have reminded me this was broken. Uh, your job is to help that mending process. And it still may have pieces that will be broken when God calls you elsewhere. And yeah. so your job is the breach. And mm. it's okay to focus on the breach, not to rebuild the entire church in your tenure. That's not realistic. That's not your work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So that is that has shifted, I think, some fear that I carried with me, some anxiety that I carried with me. I think the other idea that while I might be the first, I have been carried here 
by the prayers, the experiences, and the faith of my ancestors. I just got back from uh, Jerusalem, and I'd never been before, standing in front of the the Wailing Wall and Mm. was inserting prayers from my grandparents. And I remembered then, oh, my grandparents integrated a United Methodist Church in Detroit in the 50s. I think I'm the first. This this is actually mm-hmm. a part of my family legacy. I'm not the first, and they have carried me to this place. And so that that gives me strength and boldness. Like these were some badasses. I I can do this. <laughs> this work. These these. I'm I come from this. Um, and then I I think the the last piece that I I'm still working on. In in all honesty is to make sure that I have people around me, uh, the right mm-hmm. people around me to navigate this work. So I've been blessed. You all know Ronnell Howard and Leslie Houseworth Fields. We're part of a yes. uh, sister circle that's been together for <laughs> years. Those are my people. Those are the people that I can say, I, I failed miserably today. Let me tell you mm-hmm. about it. And they will speak life back into me. Like, not only did you fail, you're going to fail again. And like, let me tell mm-hmm. you what to do. I remember I told Ramel, I'm, I'm struggling with the pace of funerals, preaching, meetings, all of the things. She's like, oh, well, I, I, uh, you've got to find your funeral road sermon. <laughs> and I thought, tell me about this. <laughs> And she, just those practical tips from people that have done it. Uh, But oftentimes when we're the first, we're so busy trying to prove that we're worthy that we won't ask for help. And I have been alleviated of that pressure. I need help and I need help from other people that have done it and done it well. So those, those are just some of the the things that I've been learning so far. What, nine months in (laughs) of the job. (laughs) Yeah. That's so good. I'm really curious to know, though, because I see you're a Moho grad. Yeah. Which is not information I knew before, and I don't know why I didn't know that. I am a Smith grad. So. Ah, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Western Massachusetts, seven sisters. Yes. Right. Yes. It's a beautiful thing. Do you think uh, being in a women's college has helped you prepare for some of this work? Um Absolutely. Yes. Enroll all your daughters. So (laughs) I, I not only went to a women's college, I went to a all girls high school and middle school. And I remember when I was visiting Mount Holyoke, I was, I, after high school, I was like, I would love to see men like in class. Maybe it's time. (laughs) Lord, is it time? And on our, um, on our tour, this woman said the smartest person in the classroom is a woman. The, um, the person who asks the dumbest questions is a woman. Uh, the person who is leading the um, student government is a woman. Like every, the, it presented to me a parallel universe where mm-hmm. leadership had nothing to do with gender. It had to do with uh, gifts with merit with moxie <laughs> um, <laughs> and I because even in high school while I went to an all-girls school it still was in proximity of a boys school we still we still found a way to undo some of what our teachers were trying to instill <laughs> but with Smith and Mount Holyoke they really are a world away they're kind of tucked into these enclaves where that 
culture of female empowerment really um, is instilled in you. And you walk out of there after four years with a different lens, not asking permission to be there, but an expectation that I am supposed to be here. And I see that that difference. I mean, you know the stats on this of so many women that are in politics and leadership positions. Many of them went to women's colleges. And so there's something in the water there. I just wish the water was not $75,000 because as a pastor, I don't, I'm, I'm hoping right. that they give like a special scholarship for, uh, for that. I, I don't know of it yet. So if you're listening and you'd like to endow a scholarship for pastor's children to go to some of these schools, let us know. Okay. We're waiting. <laughs> Shameless plug. Love it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, so I too also went from Smith to Princeton. I find that the female clergy that I meet who have been surrounded in either are from women's, like graduate from women's colleges or are deeply rooted in this idea of sisterhood of, you know, we are, we're all navigating this together, Mm -hmm. have been some of the most profound leaders that I've encountered. Mm -hmm. And I wish that we could do that better across the board. We're all part of one larger story, mm-hmm. right? And that one day somebody else will follow me at this in this congregation and I want to set them up for success and I want to set this congregation up for success. And one day, you know, the firsts will not feel so scary yeah. for people because we'll remember, right? We come from a long line of badasses. Right. That's the tagline that I think should be for this episode. <laughs> Nicole's, I come from a long line of badasses, right? But can you talk about this big picture thing? Um, I know you and Javon wrote this book together and you're exploring the story of Joseph in Genesis. Um, Tell us more about things like in chapter three, you say, don't let your conditions determine your character. Oh, yeah. Talk to us about that. (laughs) You know, that was a good chapter. This book, and I think a lot of a lot of uh, pastors listening can relate to this, that your best theological ideas are confirmed by your congregation. So we preached a series on this and our congregation said, you need to write a book on this. Like this needs, this is something that's needed. As you look at your church, especially right as we were trying to come out of the pandemic and maybe 30% of who used to show up in person is sitting there. It's really easy to let that then impact the way that you lead, the way that you show up, the way that you preach or serve. Well, if it's only 30 people, then am I going to still serve, (laughs) preach, and teach as if it's the full house? And I think that that is one of the biggest lessons of Joseph's life. Whether you found him in a field, in a prison, or in a palace, he was a leader. He had integrity. And that, that really inspired us, especially as we were navigating the pandemic. And then looking at our own lives, I remember there was one... So Javon's first Sunday at Hamilton Memorial in Atlantic City, there were 27 people and half of them were in the choir. (laughs) And so any United Methodist pastor can relate to this. And so it is uninspiring sometimes to look out 
and to see that. And you have to make a choice that am I going to preach and serve like there are 3,000 people watching? Because it's what you do in those spaces, even when they don't look impressive or, uh, you know, to our human eyes, important, that then opens that next door that you can't even see. And it's our character that opens those doors, along with uh, God's grace working alongside that character. So, yeah, I, that every time we sometimes question one another, we'll say, you need to read your book. <laughs> like you, because we're, <laughs> we saw this in the text, but we also are, are trying to live it out too every single day, which isn't easy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to spoil the book too much because uh, it's I think churches should order the book, you know, use it in your uh, Bible studies. It's a great, great, uh, inspiring book. There's five chapters, five lessons. Uh, but I think the 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 fifth chapter, how how both of you sort of ended that the series was on this idea of uh, seeing the big picture is not uh, a journey towards clarity, but it's a discipline of letting go. Yeah. And that I kind of wrestled with for a while. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, we think if we just see the bigger picture, then everything will be clear. And that's not what mm -hmm. it is. It's really about beginning to let go. And yeah. uh, I resonated with that pretty hard <laughs> this mm -hmm. week as I, uh, when I read that part. And you know, I, I resonate with that and I appreciate that validation because I did not learn, and either one of us, we learned that lesson the hard way of yeah. not being able to let go of certain things. And if this book can help someone not have that uh, hard, rough, or rough side of the hill as they climb, as long as we experienced it, for me, it was connected a lot to grief and not being able to let go of that experience in order to really see the big picture. Just to kind of wrap all of it up, right? Mm -hmm. What are some practical steps that individuals and churches can take to help people see God's dream for their lives and to connect yeah. to those dots of God's grace and presence and protection, protection? Like, how do you start that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we talked a little bit about earlier was this idea of seeing it and how powerful mm -hmm. that can be. And I mentioned the, the church uh, in Atlantic City, and I remember uh, Javon had just, he had served in Brooklyn, New York previously at a, a much larger congregation yeah. and visited Brooklyn Tabernacle in his travels there. And if you've heard of Brooklyn mm. Tabernacle, it's an incredibly yep. vital congregation, um, beautiful worship, but even more beautiful mission of connecting very diverse people. And yeah. he was organizing a bus trip from Atlantic City to Brooklyn so that people could visit that church. Mm -hmm. And I remember another pastor saying like, that's gonna, that's gonna scare your people because they're, it's such a small church and to take them to that. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like that's a worthwhile venture. And what he really wanted people to see was not even worship. He wanted people to see the line outside the building. So mm -hmm. people literally line up to wait to go into this church. And when you see the line, there are people that look like they literally slept on the street the night before. 
people that are, you know, prim and pop proper and everything in between all different races, ages. And that's what we had in and around our church in Atlantic City. And we needed to get our leaders and people to see what was possible. Because, of course, you know the story of Brooklyn Tabernacle. It didn't start as this huge mega church. And so when what he had been preaching or teaching or doing Bible studies or workshops about, all of that clicked when people could see it for themselves. And so I would really encourage pastors, do not think my church is too small or that's too far or that's too out of our league. Take your congregation to see it and they will start dreaming. And all the sermons you've planned and you've exhausted yourself <laughs> preaching, they're, fi- they're going to get. And then facilitate yeah. conversation. Yeah. I mean, they, on, on their bus ride back, they, everyone was having ministry ideas. And what can mm-hmm. we do next? And mm-hmm. you know, that little church then went on to you know, have a freedom school and have an amphitheater and a, a community garden and things that they did not think were possible at the outset. So certainly helping people see physically. Uh, I would say, and this again sounds like preacher speak, but I think that sometimes we do not talk enough about the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to talk about super practical tips like, okay, uh, preach this way, get this equipment, uh, make sure you have this. But sometimes we can be so practical that we can practically diminish the power of the Holy Spirit. And I... I'm so mm-hmm. guilty of that, right? I, I want to like a master spreadsheet with all of our metrics goals and our dashboard and how we're going to do it. And the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit will wreck me every time. Like yeah. you, your plans, that's fine, <laughs> but I'm going to come in and do things exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you've even asked, thought, or imagined was possible. And it blows my mind. And every time it happens, I'm like, why don't you start there? How many times does God have to like do this with you? You're ridiculous. Oh, that's so true though. And that's so just, true. I don't Come know on. why I don't start there. And yeah. I, I, it, when I start there, it, it changes everything. And so I, I just want to encourage if, if that's the only thing you hear from this conversation, just remember the power of the Holy Spirit that, that we mm. all have as disciples, as leaders, as laity, and as pastors. And I would say the, maybe the final thought on, on dreaming again is just this idea that we don't dream by ourselves. So I think I, you know, have migrated to the Methodist church, but I grew up in a Catholic church, uh, in a Methodist church, and was ordained in a Baptist church. (laughs) And so (laughs) my thought of pastoring and dreaming was that the senior leader goes into like a cave or a closet, they Mm. download the vision, and then they communicate it to the people. And because of that, I would often vision by trying to get everything detailed, and then delay the vision Mm. coming into reality because I'm trying to work on all the details. In Joseph's story, God gives not a single detail, but a glimpse, right? There's, there's wheat, there's bowing down. That's it. You get a glimpse. And I strongly encourage pastors, especially ones that carry the burden of perhaps their race, ethnicity, or their gender into their leadership role. Do not wait for the details. Start dreaming 
immediately and publicly share that dream. So, you know, and I've, I've been thinking, what is the big thing God is calling me to do in my first year of ministry? I preached a sermon series called What's Next and talked about a dream I had of connecting with some apartment buildings across the parking lot from our church. And I said, basically, I don't know like what we're going to do with that, but I have no doubt that God is calling us to do something. And that Monday, two women in my congregation said, we think we know the something. And uh, we'd like to start this uh, after school program. We'd like to start that by first talking to uh, residents there and figuring out what they need. Their conversations then led them to what is being called Lunch Bunch Superstars. I'm not in charge of names, but everybody else loves it. Um, I keep thinking of like a PBS program, (laughs) but it obviously works. And what we found in our community is that during spring break, a lot of these kiddos that are on free and reduced lunch do not have a meal that day. And so our congregation has offer those during spring breaks. We'll offer them all summer long. And then this after school program, we hope to kick off in the fall. I did not have any details. This was not what I thought would happen because I didn't know. I just announced the dream and trusted the Holy Spirit to bring people that would help cultivate that dream. So that took me just, I think, Mm -hmm. taking the risk of saying what I don't know and trusting God to do the rest. So th- yeah. those are the, the, the things that I would share as I think about dreaming uh, with congregations again. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Nicole, thank you so mm-hmm. much. That's awesome. Thank you. It was so hey. wonderful <laughs> to talk to some New Jersey folks again. And I know what <laughs> amazing ministry happens there. I often point my congregation uh, to uh, G&J and some of the awesome things that are produced by the conference and churches there. So thank you for the ministry that you're doing. It matters. Keep it up. And I'm watching and copying and not giving you credit. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Well, Nicole, we have um, one final question that we ask all of our guests. And we did ask you this six years ago, but your answer might have changed. And uh this is our last one final question we ask all of our guests, and it goes like this. Uh, Nicole, if you could have one dish for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what would it be? I actually, I may have said this six years ago, I am a committed snacker. And so my idea of a perfect meal is charcuterie olives calmata olives i would have roasted red pepper fontina cheese i would have um the everything garlic uh, crackers i would have Mm -hmm. the green grapes the cotton candy ones and i would have a lavender um prosecco cocktail if the Lord would have that for me in heaven, <laughs> like that's motivation enough for me to keep serving. Um, yeah. And now probably six years ago, I may have said McDonald's French fries, but the, the Lord is working on me <laughs> and trying to recognize that um, cardiovascular disease is real. <laughs> and so I'm just 
you know, trying trying to trying to work it out. I believe in my mind the fruit balances all the fat of the olives and the cheese. It may not be true, but I still love it. No, it works. <laughs> it's a very balanced meal. That, that is very Thank balanced. You. I think that's that's been the most sophisticated answer we've gotten so far. It so, is. It is. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well. Oh, yeah. This is waiting for you in heaven. Nicole, well, thank so. you. One day. Thank one you. day. Breakfast, lunch, there. and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, once again, Nicole, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, folks, sure. if you want to learn more about Nicole, you could uh, find, re- read her blog and find out more about her on her website at revncg.com. And also be sure to pick up uh, a book that her and Javon wrote together, The Big Picture, Seeing God's Dream for Your Life. Nicole, thank you again for coming on the podcast. We hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you.